She was born in Israel, raised in grinding poverty. But today she leads an organization dedicated to the welfare of orphans. Her name is Norma Nashed. I'm John Bradshaw, and this is our conversation. Norma, thanks so much for being here. What a blessing to have you. Thank you for the invitation. It has been a remarkable journey. Today, you lead an organization called Restore a Child in many countries around the world on several continents dedicated to the well-being of orphans. But let's go back to the beginning and learn a little more about you. You were born in a, a little town in Israel and raised in fascinating conditions. You became a pilot. You became a personal friend of the King of Jordan. There's a lot to cover here. So, so let's go back to the beginning. How did it all get started? It started when, uh, you know, I was born in a small town near Jerusalem. And uh, it was like the upper room that Jesus talked about that he, you know, borrowed for the Last Supper. And, uh, you know, the, my grandparents were not poor. They, they had their own business, private, and they were doing well. But then my father moved to Jordan, and he was educated too, you know, with French, English, and worked for an American company with high salary. However, we lived in one room house with no kitchen and no bathroom, no water. So, so why was that? I mean, it sounded like it didn't need to be that way, but it was. So what was going on in your family? My father was needed. He thought he needed the money for himself. <laughs> so, so as, as a consequence, you, you, the, the children and his suffered. wife. Yeah. How many kids in the family? Seven. Okay. And you lived in a one-room home? Yeah, with the two parents, nine. Nine people. Okay. So you were raised. What was, your, what was the religious background of your family? They were uh, Orthodox. Okay. Greek Orthodox. Mm-hmm. But my mom was a spiritual woman. So as soon as she, you know, somebody reached her with the message, she accepted it. Okay. So she committed her life to Jesus. Yes. All the children followed with her? All the children. Okay. And what was, what was dad thinking? <laughs> Too selfish to think of us. Ah, okay. So let's talk about your upbringing a little bit. You were, you were raised in Jordan. Yes. Okay. Well, what was life like as, as a kid in Jordan those years ago? Of course, uh, we loved it. However, we lived with the refugees. We were not refugees, but we lived with them. And the United Nations considered us as refugees. And they gave us a card for food. So when we went to school, we would get breakfast free and lunch free. So that was a good deal. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, school was, was what? Fun experience, difficult? How did you do in school? No, I loved it because the first two years, I went to a Catholic church, a school. And the first thing I would do is run to the convent because I heard the nuns singing. I, I was spiritual when I was very young. And that was my first thing to do. Before going to classes or eating breakfast, I'd go and hear the nuns singing. I loved that part of the, of the school. Uh, did you excel in school? Was it, a, was it a struggle for you? Because I know later on in life, you, you, you rose to some pretty interesting heights. So how did you do academically? 
you know how it is, you know, I got A's and B's, <laughs> but not straight A's. Math was my difficult subject. <laughs> hey, A's and B's is okay. You got through school, and, and, and so, so you're raised in Jordan. You're a young lady in Jordan looking into the future. What did the future look like to you? Was, was it open, unlimited, or, or was, it, was it restricted? Were your options limited? You know, the culture is very restrictive. But, you know, I was different. I did not accept the culture. And I got into trouble in school because I needed answers. If they tell me do this thing because it's the culture, I need to understand why. Explain to me why not. And so, yeah, so I did not uh, conform to my culture. Okay, yeah. <laughs> After school, what happened next? After you mean high school? Yeah, I mean, after high not school. really even high school. I was 14 years old, middle school, and my father died. So one missionary, Dr. Robert Darnell and his wife, Mary, were moved. They were in Beirut, Lebanon. They took me to, so I could go to school, continue my education at Middle East College at that time. In Beirut? In Beirut. Yeah. And I went to two years of college. Then my mom really became completely blind, could not work. She used to sew. And she told me, you've got to leave college and come and help me. So, but I, I'm glad. I love my mom. She was my role model. A spiritual woman, you know, she was the priest of the family. We had worship every morning and every night with her. She would do for us. So I immediately left college and went to work and got a very plush job. Okay, so you did two years at Middle East, what's now Middle East University, then Middle East College. You came home to Jordan. Yes. Well, tell me about that job. See, what, what I'm interested in is following the trajectory of your life to the place where now you run an international organization. <laughs> yes. You know, I'm hearing about a, a, a girl raised in poverty in the Middle East, moved to Jordan. This doesn't sound like the beginnings of, a, of an international organization. <laughs> so yes. tell me about this job you got. Yes, I got a job for the president and chairman of the Royal Jordanian Airlines. And he was actually advisor to the King Hussein of Jordan and uh, personal friend, close friends. So when the King came to meet the heads of state to the airport, he would come and see my boss. When he would say goodbye to these people, he would come and see my boss because he is his friend and advisor. And so I always saw him. He would come to my office. He had to <laughs> to go to my boss. He had to pass through my office. And he would look and say, hi, Norma. Hello, Norma. Hey, two things. Oh, I wonder if that was intimidating. A, 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 a girl raised in poverty yeah. is now interacting with legitimately one of the most powerful people on the planet. Yes. With, you must have been shaking in your boots. No, because, you know, I love the king. Even I remember when I was seven and eight years old, when I hear the sirens of the motorcade of the royal royalty, that's the king, I would run to go and see something, a glimpse of him. I loved the king. I was intimidated yeah, a little bit, but uh, I loved him. So tell me what he was like. Maybe demystify. I think if, if the most of us think of the king of Jordan, I, I don't know quite what image we'd have in our head, but I would imagine... Somebody pretty grave, somebody pretty austere, certainly very powerful. But you kind of got to see him in a, a pretty regular setting, in a work setting. 
What was he like as a human being? You know, the king was very much in tune with his people, the Jordanians and the Bedouins, the poor people. He would go and eat with them, sit on the floor in the tents with these Bedouins. People loved him. They would give their lives for him. And then, you know, he did, you know, he was a king, but when he was a child, he was not rich. His family were not rich. And he went and studied in London, and uh, before that, studied in Egypt, in Cairo. He said at times, he struggled with having money. He was not rich. That's interesting, isn't it? You know, I have your book here. Let me reach back here and get it. We're going to talk about your book along the way here, Norma Beyond Their Tears. I think it's a fantastic book. I've read it from cover to cover. One of the things that I was interested in in this book is that you invited the wife of the King of Jordan to your home. She came, you cooked a meal. So you, so you, would, you yes. would spend time with royalty. Yes, you know, when I worked at the Jordanian Airlines in Egypt, after I left Jordan, I, ha- I was a public relations supervisor at that time. And my, one of my duties is to meet digni- VIPs, dignitaries. And you know, because of uh, climate, weather, and technical problems, the, air, the flights were not always on time. I had to stay with these people and entertain them, order meals for them, drinks for them, whatever. And it often happened <laughs> when the queen was traveling. And so I had uh, to sit with her for a couple of hours or more, and we became friends, real friends. I would call her, she would call me, and then I invited her to my home, and she came. And I cooked for her, and she said, I can't believe this is very tasty food. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there you were working in a, in a, in a major company, rubbing shoulders with um, very powerful people, the elite, if you like. Yes. Um, very, very influential people. But here's an interesting thing. I read about this in your book. You became a pilot. So, yes. so I, I don't know how unusual it was for uh, young females in Jordan to become pilots. My guess is re- relatively yes, unusual. Very unusual. What happened is the king, we did not have uh, any Jordanian pilots. And if we had a few, they were trained in America or London. So the king wanted to start a flight training club were to teach Jordanian young men to fly. And they had no money for the club at that time to do their office work. I volunteered to do the work for them. So for a year or two, I did all the work free. I, you know, I, don't, I, want, I like to help people. And so they, and then they asked me, they said, you did all this work. What would you like us to do? I said, train me. To be a pilot <laughs> because it's very expensive sure to pay for uh, training oh yeah so i started training i had a logbook in the civil aviation of jordan with my name and the hours flying and uh, but i did not finish because the war broke in 67 and i had to leave jordan what would have happened to you oh yeah if you'd become a pilot got your wings what would have happened God had another direction for me. Sure. Had a plan. You may have become a pilot flying yes. for Royal Jordanian Airlines. Yeah, and flying for the king. Yeah. <laughs> his his per- private pilot. How interesting is that? Yes. You were a Christian. Yes. Working with Muslims. Yes. Working with Arabs. Mm-hmm. Now, it wasn't, you know, 2000 and whatever. We're going back a few years now. Yeah. 
But what was that like? Um, clearly, you had a belief system that was very different than the vast majority of people around you. So yes. you were you were you were unique. You were unique. very different. Yes. Did that work for you? Did it work against you? Did it provoke tensions? How, how did that work? No. You know what? Even the Muslims could tell a genuine Christian. You cannot say, I'm a Christian, and expect people to respect you. But if you live the life that Jesus showed us, he's our example. How to love, how to work, his people to love Everybody around you, whether they are Christians, Muslims, or Jews, they're all my family, they're all my friends. And then, you know, when they offered me to work, and the only day off in Jordan and in the Middle East was only Friday. There is no other day. So what does that mean? It means I take Friday off, I have to work on Saturday, which was for me, I couldn't do that for I believed in this fourth commandment. Sure. <laughs> but I've never had a problem with in Egypt, in Kuwait, and in Jordan. Wherever I went, I told them of my principles, my faith, and my life. I will not break that uh, relationship with my creator by working on a day that I don't believe so, so you were raised in, in abject poverty. Yes. You're offered a fantastic job, a life-changing experience, uh, with it, certainly a little glamour involved. Yes. And you said to them, No. 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 I, I, I'd, <laughs> I, I'd rather stay in grinding poverty <laughs> yes. than accept your job. Yes. If it means transgressing the principles of my faith. Yes. But how do they respond to that? You know... They were really shocked because they haven't met anybody like that, right. Christian like that. So they, you know, they waited a day or two to think about it, and they interviewed many others. But ultimately, I was chosen for the jobs. Fantastic. In spite of what might have been the, the religious differences. You know, especially this man. He is very, uh, the president and chairman of Jordanian Airlines. You know, for, very powerful man. And for him to come on Saturday, and there is no office assistant. He had nobody in the office. So all his, you know, the prime ministers and ministers and important people come. How is it that you allow her to take Saturday off? He said, to get somebody like her, I would sacrifice one day a week. Hey, fantastic. What a great testimony for your faith in God as well. Yes. Hey, I just want to remark or, or notice something. The clothes you're wearing. Mm. Now, this is... Uh, it's, it's specific to something. Tell me, tell me about the dress you're wearing. Yes. You know, every town in Israel or near that area, they have a code, a dress code, special uh, tradition, traditional dress. This is a traditional dress with the same colors that belong only to my town, the town of Ramallah. Fantastic. So that's, uh, that's, that's that. If, if someone from Ramallah saw you in that dress. They would know. They would know immediately yes. you're one of us. Yes. Fantastic. So your, your, your heritage, your Middle Eastern heritage, uh, you've been away from the Middle East now probably much longer than you lived in the Middle East. Yes. Uh, speak to me about your connection to that heritage and what it means to you today. Well, you know, uh, I belong to the heritage of God. Sure. God's people and so on. 
I am not so much in, uh, you know, com- uh, connected or so much entrenched in my culture. Because the Middle Eastern cultures, you know, is this, women are submissive. <laughs> mm-hmm. I could not be sub- <laughs> submissive. Uh, I wanted, it's okay, I will obey, but I need answers. If, if there's something I did not believe in, I wanted people to explain to me why it is that I have to do <laughs> what they're asking me. And that was against the culture. Sure, sure. Um, maybe that's the kind of drive, yes. uh, the kind of tenacity a person might need who would want to lead an organization. Yes. Um, you've got to be an advocate for orphans, and today that's, that's exactly what you are. Let me just start down that road. You were working in the airline. Eventually, you came to the United States. How did yes. that come about? You know, I came to the United States, and because actually the truth is that my boss and the, the chairman and president of the airline went and started his own company. And the, the man who came to replace him was very fanatic. And who is this woman that's keeping this, you know, that's not working on Friday? That, you know, I don't, I worked on Friday. I didn't take it off. And so they said, they told him she's a Jewish, you know, in the Middle East. They're oh, that's right. If you're keeping the Sabbath, Sabbath, you're a Jew. Yeah, I'm a Jew. Sure. Even my cousin told me, you are a Jew. Yeah. I'm your cousin. Yeah, you are a Jew. I'm honored to be a Jew, really. Yeah, sure. No. So it was time to go, huh? Yeah. yeah. So what they did is they started sending me letters. Every, every Sunday I come, they have a, a letter from the lawyer. You're absent yesterday <laughs> on Sabbath. Three times, and I stopped. I resigned and applied to come to the States, which usually takes a minimum of four or five years, sometimes more. You know, quota. You have sure. to wait for your oh, turn. Yeah. In less than six months, I got the, the visa, immigration. Did you sense at that time that that was the leading of God? I expect you did. Now, let me ask you this. Did you, did, did you, did you see, did you sense at any time that God had a larger purpose for you? You work in the airline. It was great. You're doing well. You're living in Jordan. Did, where, where did that idea start to emerge in your life? Wait, God has a life in ministry for me. When did that occur to you? That occurred only when I had cancer. I was working, you know, for the headquarters, and uh, I got cancer. Immediately I knew God had a purpose other than, you know, being office manager or whatever they call it. You know, I find that very interesting because when many people get cancer, they start to think very different things, such as why in the world, uh, why would this happen to me, and my life may well be over. Those are understandable things. So cancer revealed to you that God had a purpose for you. We're going to find out more about that in just a moment. Her name is Norma Nashiet. She has written a fantastic book. It is called Norma Beyond Their Tears. It will tell you her life story and about her ministry with orphans. We will learn more about her fascinating story and her ministry in just a moment. He's been called the father of the faithful. Even though his life didn't always give evidence of great faith, The Bible says that Abraham was strong in faith. Join me on location in Israel for Man of Faith. You'll discover lessons on faith and discover how you can be a person of real faith 
in the God of heaven. What is faith? The Bible says, without faith it is impossible to please God, and God's people in earth's last days are described as having faith, the faith of Jesus. Man of faith. Abraham, a flawed man, a faulty man, a man prone to make mistakes. Abraham, the father of the faithful. Learn how you can have faith, real faith. Grow your faith. Don't miss Man of Faith on It Is Written TV. Welcome back to Conversations brought to you by It Is Written. My guest today is Norma Nashed. She leads an organization called Restore a Child. Norma was raised in grinding poverty, understands how children struggle, particularly orphans. And so she has dedicated her life to helping and ministering to orphans. We're going to lead into that, to your life of ministry in just a second. But I want to ask you about something you said a moment ago. I asked you, when do you get a sense of God's calling, the greater purpose for your life? You said that came to you when you had cancer. Tell me about that, how you discovered you had cancer and, and how very clearly God brought you through that. Yes, you know, it was, I was misdiagnosed by the one doctor. And uh, so it, it's, uh, you know, a rare disease. It's in the blood, but shows on the skin. Mm-hmm. So, and then there's only one place in Maryland that treats it. It's very rare. Very few people have it. And so, I, because I was still working just for two, three months, and then I decided it's time to give my life to God. So I had gone for treatments, but then I knew it's time for me to move. And so I left my job, and knowing that I have no job, no medical insurance, no husband to take care of me. I am not rich. I didn't have a house. I was renting uh, two rooms, one for me, one for my son. And, um, but I knew that God will take care of me. Amazing feeling. I did not cry. I did not say, why God, me, why I have cancer. I was happy because I knew God is doing something for me. Something good will come of it. I didn't know what will come out of this cancer. But uh, several times, my my life was dotted with miracles. I could tell God was working for something good for me. Mm -hmm. How else did you see God work? He clearly brought you through that. You were were healed, cured of your cancer, and you've been cancer-free for many years. Talk to me about one or two other times that you've said, wow, this is God working in my life. This is God. You know, I tell you. Because uh, when I had cancer, uh, I had a friend in Egypt, and he heard that, you know, I have no job, I have no home, I have no medical insurance, nothing, no husband. How can I take care of myself? And his wife was my best friend. And so she died of cancer too. But he said, cold, until he found where I am. I didn't have a home. I was with somebody staying with people. And he told me, Norma, if I don't help you, I will never forgive myself. Mm. I will take care of you. I will pay for everything. Go, rent a place and everything. Don't worry about it. I said, okay, I will rent a room in a basement, and I'm happy with that. He said, no, you rent a nice apartment with a swimming pool and enjoy your life. And don't worry, even if it's forever. 
I will always pay for you. Well. He paid for me every month $3,000 for rent, for medical, for food, for anything I needed. And I saved some of it too. <laughs> Miraculous, isn't it? That's it God is. stepping into your life when, when, there was, when there was no one to advocate for you. No. Somebody from out of the blue stepped in and said, I'm there for you. Because God knew. He had a purpose. He knew I will be available to, to serve him. I really wanted to do what God wanted, opens up for me to do. You know what's interesting? Today you minister to orphans around the world. And it's fascinating to me to see how God ministered to you. You're born into very challenging circumstances, but then God provided you with an education. Yes. Uh, missionaries stepped in to raise you. You yes. found yourself at Middle East College, um, now university. Uh, God seemed to be placing you here. Again, you mentioned your friend who came through for you when you had cancer and no means of support. So God advocated for you. Yes. He stepped in to help you yes. when you had no help. Yes. Now, let, let, let's talk about the transition, the one who'd been ministered to. You decided at some stage it was time for you to minister to others. Yes. And God placed it on your heart to minister to orphans. How'd that come about? Uh, actually, orphans is the focus, but children in general. Okay. Hungry, hungry children. I couldn't stand knowing so, some child doesn't have food. To you eat. were raised very hungry. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I was, you know, raised very poor, and sometimes we had no food. Yeah, listen, everybody feels bad about hungry kids. Everybody everywhere. You ask anyone, how do you, how do you feel about hungry kids? Oh, it breaks my heart. No. And, and the vast majority of people do nothing about it. What was different about you that this was impre- maybe it was your experience, your upbringing? I don't know. You tell me. What was it about you that that it that something within you sort of broke? Yes. Or, or maybe was galvanized. However, you want to explain that. And you said, "I'm I'm stepping out in faith. I'm gonna do something to help these kids." Yes. That the area, the apartment where I rented, is what was an upscale area just across, the, you know, in Silver Spring, and uh, but. When I go shopping and I come, these black African-American children, they would run after me, please give me a banana, give me an apple, give me... What's wrong with America? Why are these children hungry? I couldn't believe it. Of course, I gave them all they wanted, and every time I bought, I bought more for them. I really made it my, uh, my mission to start helping those children around in my own backyard and they trusted me enough the parents because i was so good to them that they let me go into their homes usually i'm different color they don't want me in but they know i love their children and inside their apartments expensive 1300 a month for uh, for rent and these nothing there were no there was no furniture there was nothing just on the on the you know they have rugs there so that's all they had. Why? They were there. I asked them, how, how come you are here? It's very expensive. They said the government pays. So the government pays for them to stay poor. How did you respond to that? Yeah, I couldn't, you know, but I, and then eventually I wanted not just feed them. I wanted to teach them about Jesus. So I would ask the mothers, can you allow them to come with me to church? And they said, yes. So I would buy them clothes. I'll take them and wash them, put their clothes on, and take them with me to church. And then, you know, we had potlucks, and after that, had, you know, spend time with them and bring them back. 
the parents were very happy with me. <laughs> we became very good friends. And, but this is, was only in, in my backyard. But I knew there are other uh, children in the same, in Washington, D.C., in Maryland, in Tacoma Park, all these areas that are struggling. Poor children. I started working for them too. You know, I, there is, uh, in Maryland, there is uh, Safeway and Giants. These are the biggest stores. And I, and calls and toys for us. I'll go to them. I need to, I need toys for Christmas. I need clothes for these children. I need food for them. They gave me, you know, they would put, you know, these uh, carts yeah. with our name. And every day they would fill them, the people. I didn't have time, room for them. I put them on my, <laughs> all over my apartment, on the porch, on my friend's garages, on my son's garage, wherever I can find somebody to store these, this food so I can distribute it. And it was fantastic, you know. I was happy to have the children have everything they wanted. And so this is how I started. That's how you started. How did Restore a Child grow? I mean, clearly something was happening here. When did it and how did it occur to you that this was going to be a full-time ministry? No, right away I knew because I had cancer, you know. I didn't want to work. I wanted to take care of my health by, you know, having following the rules of health, nutrition, sunlight, exercise, and so on. And then studying God's Word was very important to me. And that, uh, you know, drew me more to Jesus. And Jesus always said, let the little children come to me. Jesus loved little children. When he was preaching to people, he said, he found, you know, they would sit all day without food. And Jesus said, had compassion on them. And he fed them. So I had to do the same. I want to follow Jesus. Example for children and adults, but the focus is on children. And this is how it is. This is how, and God provided for all my ministry. But then I had in my heart two countries very close to my heart. As a child, I was, you know, either the newspapers, we didn't have a TV, but I heard about the famines and struggles of the Ethiopian. Sure. Ethiopia children. They are like, you know, with malnutrition dying because they have no food to eat. And then South Sudan, with the four, war, 20 years, and children run away. They have no home. They are in refugee camp. So this is where I started my ministry, Ethiopia and South Sudan, and then grew from there until we became around 20 countries. It was, <laughs> it was too much for me. Like we reached Burma, Malaysia, Thailand, uh, Indonesia. I did, all these five countries. But now we stayed focused on Indonesia. And uh, then, you know, East Africa, Ethiopia, Congo is in the mid, but Tanzania, Kenya, you name it. I'd like you to explain for me your, your philosophy of ministering to children and orphans. What is it that you see in the Bible? You've touched on that, but speak about this from a, from a biblical perspective. What is it that drives you sort of theologically to do what you do? You know, when I was reading the Bible, I really was studying, not just reading. I read my Bible many times, but when you study, study it, it's different. So even in Isaiah chapter 1, one verse touched me very much. One seventeen. it says, Do good, seek justice, 
defend orphans. Well, <laughs> so plain. So what are we doing for orphans? So, so I started a movement called the Do Movement in 2010, yes. And that is Defend Orphans. Mm. Beautiful. And, uh, you know, uh, I shared it with the churches and people were happy and schools. And then I, as in my studies, I studied Isaiah 58. 58 is a beautiful chapter. It is. It really is. Yes. Yeah. And so it, people say, Lord, we pray. You don't hear. We fast and you do not notice. He said, is this the fast that I have chosen? Five to seven. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? Mm -hmm. If you see a naked, that you clothe him. And do not hide yourself from your own flesh. Listen to these words. You are not covering them up. This is your, your flesh. These, these naked children and people, hungry and naked, they are yours. This is your own flesh. So what do I do? Yeah, well, what did you do? It sounds, it sounds like you got pretty busy, pretty active. <laughs> Immediately, yes. I started, you know, uh, feeding the hungry. That's a very big part of our ministry. Clothing and so on is not as difficult, but we do. Because children in Africa are on the streets without shoes, with hardly any clothes. And I have many pictures of them. And then Jesus said, you know, the strangers, you know, I was a stranger and he took me in. Strangers are deaf, like refugees. So the first refugee, I went to camp in Congo. I traveled all the way to Congo <laughs> just to be with orphans and refugees. And there was a school of 1,000 children, our own school. And they, you know, they had no food to eat. They had no food at home and they had no food at school. How can they focus on their studies? So the first thing we did, it was so simple. Just feed them. Okay, cook a meal for them every day, a good meal. After one year, I received a letter from the government in Congo, education ministry, saying they did very well in the exam, the government exam. They said, because you fed them. They were able to sleep better and st study and do better in school. One meal. There's no question. Most of us have got no idea what, what poverty and, and, and hunger, starvation is. We have no idea. We think we know. We see the pictures. But it's, it's, it's very, very difficult for us to actually comprehend it. But we do have a biblical mandate to do something about it, yes. whether we understand it or not. Yes. You so know, it's really a command to do something about yeah, it. Yeah, and, and God actually says that he is the creator of the rights of orphans. He created them. And he said, don't rob them of their rights. We are stealing from them. Mm. If we don't give them the basic needs is mm. food, <laughs> sustenance, to live. Every day when I, when I eat, I pray. Even if I don't pray any other time, I pray at meal and pray for these kids who are hungry. Where is Restore a Child now? You've mentioned some countries. Roughly how many countries are you in right now? Now we, you know, after I work in a country for 10 years or so, and establish them and, you know, do, build whatever they need, their water, dig wells for them and so on. Then I move on to another one. So now we have 10, 11 countries. Including, I think, interestingly enough, uh, the country of Ukraine, which as we speak right now yes. is locked in a very tragic war. So you, we've got a couple of three minutes here. Tell me about what's going on in Ukraine with your work there. It's doing really very well because 
before the war, three years ago, we built four schools in Ukraine. Why four schools? I don't usually build more than one school. So this is restore a child building the schools. I mean, I say, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Restore a child. Wanted, wanted to make sure everybody knows that this was your organization that did yeah, this. Yeah, restore a child. We built four schools. Usually we don't build more than one school in one country. But at that time, God impressed us to build four schools, one in the east, one in the west, one in the north, one in the central, in all directions. And now because of the war, there is no school. But these centers, these schools, are now shelters for refugees in Ukraine. They come, they have safety, we have food, we have uh, warmth, we give them blankets, we give them medications, everything they need. And if they need transport, they want to leave, we have buses that will take them to Poland or Romania, wherever they want to go. It's going to be heartbreaking for you knowing that you have, and, and I know this is true for the church and other agencies as well, it must be heartbreaking for you to know, you know, you know people there, they're leading, they're leading the work and their lives are just being upended. How, how do you internalize that? You know, it, that's where I'm going. I wanted to go last month, but because I have problem with my lungs, they told me it's very, very cold, freezing temperature. You cannot survive here. So I'm waiting for it to warm up another few weeks. I am going there. I need to be there to see the children and see the needs. And our goal is more than, uh, you know, feeding them and protecting them. We, they cannot uh, miss their, uh, you know, they have emotional. Now they are traumatized. We need to see how we can bring the experts to, you know, counsel them. And to teach, now we want to start education for them. Even in those centers, we can still teach them. Fantastic. There's more. We'll learn more about this in just a minute. Her name is Norma Nashir. Her book is Beyond Their Tears. I misspoke moments ago when I said that she wrote the book. I mean, it's her work and it's her story, but the book was written by Dr. William Johnson, uh, a name you may well recognize, and it's very well written. There's another book to talk about, too. A book for kids, From Orphan to Missionary, The True Story of Norman Nashed. Similar story, but it's uh, presented for children. We'll talk about that in a second. This is Conversations with Norman Nashed. I'm John Bradshaw from It Is Written. We are back with more in just a moment. You know that at It Is Written, we are serious about studying the Word of God, and we encourage you to be serious as well. Well, here's what you do if you want to dig deeper into God's Word. Go to itiswritten.study for the It Is Written Bible Study Guides Online. 25 in-depth Bible studies that will take you through the major teachings of the Bible. You'll be blessed, and it's something you'll want to tell others about as well. Itiswritten.study. Go further. Itiswritten.study. Welcome back to Conversations brought to you by It Is Written. My guest is Norman Nashhead, who runs an organization called Restore a Child, ministering to kids and with a special focus on, on orphans. Norman, talk to me about the nuts and bolts of Restore a Child. How does it work? It's a, it's a donor-based ministry, correct? Yes, it is uh, donor-based now. But the first three years or four years, I had some money that I saved in retirement. I took it all out and used it for ministry. So that's how it began. You just, you just depleted your own funds. Oh, I couldn't, you know, really. I could not ask people to help if I had money in the bank. There is no way. 
once it really, when, once I had only $100 in the bank, I started what they call fundraising. And you know, it's not really, when I read First Chronicles, chapter 29, David, King David was uh, building the temple. And he talked to the leaders first, before he talked to the people. And he, after he told them, I gave all my resources. Then he came to them after he had given. And he said, God knows the intent of the heart. It's not just what he gave, what intention we have. Why are we giving it? God knows. God and so, so that's what you did. You, you gave all you had. Yes. And when you were broke, you said, I might need some help with this. Yes. Fantastic. But you know what David said, which I really, I don't like the word fundraising. David said to these leaders, and he didn't tell them, now give, because I gave. No. He said, who is willing to dedicate himself to the Lord today? It's about the heart. Mm -hmm, Sure. And when they heard him say that, they all gave, and then the people all gave. So, so talk to me about how this works, the nuts and bolts. The money is contributed to restore a child, so yes. now you've got something to work with. Yes. But who are these children, and where are these children? How do you find the children, and, and then, then what happens in their daily experience? Day yes. to day, how does, what's yes. restore a child doing? Yes. Uh, you know, it's easy to find them if you have the trusted people in the countries. Okay. So on my board, on our board, we made sure we have people who are, you know, executives who travel. And uh, so they go, they travel. I don't have to pay. I don't have to take the time. So they pay for everything and they go uh, get the reports from the area of, the, of people they can trust. And they recommend them to me. Then I have to travel to these countries and make sure these people I can trust. Now, even if they are from the church, I have to myself be convinced these people are trusted people. This is not our money. Sure. This is God's money. It's an important work. B- very important. And so then we start, you know, whether it's building a school, building a home for orphans, and working with the church locally. This is how I started it. And today, you've mentioned... 10 plus countries, you were in as many as 20. I'm sure that number would ebb and flow as, as yes. demands and, and, yes. and, and supplies uh, vary. Talk to me about some of these kids. So maybe, maybe there's a story or two you can tell me about children who were, who were rescued from poverty or, or, or helped from some yes. terrible situation. Explain to me about how, how your ministry is, is making a difference in the lives of these yes. kids. There are many, many, many stories, but I might mention two or three. One of them was a girl, could not go to school, very poor, in Indonesia. So we took her to the orphanage to you know, stay there and go to school. And she was a very good girl. We could see that she is smart. And after she finished high school, we sent her to college. She finished educa- uh, university as a mathematician. Oh, wow. Yes. Oh, she fantastic. got married when I was there. I took her picture in, in Indonesia. And then she came to work in a school next to our orphanage. And she and her husbands are both mathematicians. 
So they come and tutor the kids oh, who nice. don't know much. And then, uh, you know, this is what she wants to do. She is giving back. She said, you help me. I want to help these kids. Isn't that fantastic? I've got, to ask, I've got to ask you this. What would have become of that young lady had she not uh, intersected with Restore a Child? What sort of future did she have to look forward to? Nothing. She would be maybe get married early or run away from home if she was, you know, unhappy. You know, there was no future for them. Another boy was from Congo, and we found him. He was 12 years old on the streets. Of course, he had to go to school. He had to be fed. So we took him to the orphanage. And uh, we, he, when he finished uh, high school, he was, wanted to be a medical doctor. <laughs> and we did send him to medical school. He graduated. Now he is running a clinic. He said, I want to help only the poor people. I don't want money. He is helping the poor people in Congo. At, at the risk of being redundant here, yes. he was a 12-year-old boy yes. wandering the streets. Yes. Now, we know what future he had. He had no future. No future. And now he's a physician. Yes, he's a physician. Working with the poor. Yes. That's he a great story. Hope, you know, yeah. when, you know, poverty uh, creates low self-esteem. And no hope and no, no dignity, nothing. They have nothing. And it, and it tells you something too, doesn't it? You know, you may see some wayward child. I, I don't know quite what term to use and, and, and be as politically Street. correct as I need to be these days. But you see a kid wandering the streets with no parents and no hope and no nothing. Mm. But within that child is great potential. You know, you can't see a homeless child. You need to see a physician, yes. a mathematician, a, a, a world changer, an engineer. Yes, everything. Yeah. If you see the title of my book, Norma, the title of my book, my bio, is Norma Beyond Their Tears. Mm-hmm. I see beyond their nakedness and their tears. I see what they would become if I help them, mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. you help them. And then not only that, you know, the whole world would be better. America would be safer. Because if we take the kids from the streets and give them hope and give them a future, then they will not be targets to terrorists and violence and crime on the street. If we leave them on the streets, then they come here, they export them <laughs> mm. to do damage in other countries. It is our duty to go and uh, you know, really save them from this environment and from this destitution and nothing. So you, you've, you've been leading this organization for a number of years now. L- look, into the, look into the future. If, if you, if you, and I know you undoubtedly have plans, but you must also have dreams. Yes. And maybe there are some things you could do or you would do if you could do. If you could do. What, what, what are some of those things? The things that, like, here's what we haven't done, but we'd love to do. Yes, what I would really love to do is feed 100,000 children every day. That's my dream. You think it could be done? Yes. What does it take? It takes like a dollar a day. No, seriously, a dollar a day? Yes, feed a child. In some countries, 50 cents a day, feed a child. In Chad, it's the poorest country in the world. And they are dying. We have, we, we built a nutrition center. These kids were coming and they couldn't uh, you know, serve them all. And they, they, they were sending them back to die. I said, oh, how come? Please, never, never reject a starving child. They need to eat. We have to provide it. It's the least we could do. 
And so now all the children come, they stay a month or two, they need to go to the hospital, we pay for them. They go restored, happy, and vibrant again. Yeah, let's come back to that. Hmm. So I don't believe you are exaggerating. So that the fact of the matter is that there are places where you are that if the kids don't get fed, they mm. die. They die. See, that, didn't, that doesn't really happen in the United States. It doesn't, I mean, no, not here. You know, we, we've just got, we've got, we've got more food in our trash cans, the trash cans than some towns have in the supermarkets. Yes. You know. Yes. So, so that's what you're dealing with. With restore a child, it's, yes. it's literally in, in some places life or, or death. death. We save children. Our, our ministry now is saving children in many countries. How can they stay without food for weeks? No food, nothing. Yeah. And all what we need to do is one meal a day. How can we not offer them the what one meal? Just even sandwich, something to eat. Yeah. We are Christians. And when Jesus comes, he said the standard of his or the measurement of his judgment is going to be what? Mm. When he said, I have, will have two groups, on my right and my left. And on his right, he will tell them, come, you blessed of my father. Why? Because I was hungry and he fed me. Number one, I was naked, he clothed me. I was thirsty, he gave me a drink. I was sick, he visited me. I was a stranger, he took me in. So these are the five areas we work with. We will feed the children. We will, you know, if they are, you know, naked, or they, they are really, they are in the cold. We have to give them warmth, give them blankets, warm clothing. We do that all the time. Water, we dig wells, make sure they have water. Sick. I work actually with, doc, you know, Dr. Dick Hart of mm-hmm. Linda University for 10 years. In the, we have uh, built three pediatric wards for children. And now we are building a clinic for the Maasai people in Tanzania. So, We've got to. So in, in terms of looking out for kids, and I might have cut you short before you got to your fifth one there, but you, it, it's not just plopping food down. It's not serving food for them only. Here's, here's a meal no, presenting no. food. But you said pediatric wards hospitals, nutrition clinics. Well, this is very comprehensive, isn't it? It is very comprehensive because it's the whole person. How do you make a person whole? Not just by food. And And, and then bringing them to know Jesus. And that was my very question. And so let's talk about that because in some places it's not like you can conduct an evangelistic series. Some places are very difficult. Uh, So you're reaching the heart via certain means. Let's talk about how how that's going. Yes, you know... uh, when we, that's why we build more schools now than homes of orphanages. And not, we are not the only one. If you look at uh, Save the Children, World Vision, they have uh, refrained. They don't do any more orphanages. But they keep the children in the community, their own community, and provide for food and education for them. But our children, we do, we do that for them. And so you, because we are in charge of the school, we can know what to teach them. And it's very important to me to bring them to know God and to bring them to know Jesus Christ. Mm. It's life-changing, isn't it? Let's talk about the books. 
So this is the uh, book Dr. Johnson wrote, Norma Beyond Their Tears, the amazing story of an Arab girl who became a champion for orphans. It's, it's, it's amazing how you came from, from being absolutely destitute yes. to having an opportunity to, to choose a so, life where you moved with the rich and famous, but you said, God will come first. Yes. That door closed. God opened another door. Yes. Now you're in ministry. ministry how yes. about this book? I like this from Restore a Child, from Orphan to Missionary, the true story of Norman Nashid, and it's presented for, for children. It, it, yes. It's beautiful. Why did you do this? I didn't do it. God did it. <laughs> I tell you, because one girl, she graduated last year from Southern Adventist University here in College Day. And she is a nurse, but she's an artist also. So she said, I want to write your story for, you know, for kids. And so she wrote my story. It's a beautiful, you know, it's just the way she wrote it. It's really well done. Illustrated it. And uh, I'm hoping, you know, with these uh, books, it's not intention to sell them. We don't sell. It's the intention is to feed hungry children and starving children. Now, someone's concerned. They said, oh, I'd like that book. And you just said, we don't sell them. You better explain how people can get these books. These people, you know, the books, uh, the my bio, Norma Beyond Their Tears, is on uh, Amazon. Yeah. And it is in all Adventist book centers. Sure. So people can buy them from there. That's easy to find. Yes. And yeah. then they can write to us. We will send it to them. Okay. And the same with that uh, book. Uh, it is being printed actually this week from orphan to missionary. It is for children. If you want to impact your child for God, if you want them to learn how to serve others, get this book because it is a life-changing book for children. You know, you touched on something really important. Kids, orphans, the impoverished, the disadvantaged, they need to be ministered to. Kids who are not poor, impoverished, or disadvantaged need to be encouraged to minister to them, to minister to others, right? Yes. We've got to somehow break kids out of this, this selfishness we breed into them. And by exposing them to stories like this, yes, uh, that's, that's what's going to happen. Okay, tell me, if somebody wants to support or restore a child, how do they go about it? Uh, you know, on our website, yep. restoreachild.org. Actually, the book, Norma Beyond Their Tears, La Sierra University Film Department produced a book, uh, produced a film on this book. It's called Shadow Child, and it's on our website. Okay. People can uh, view the film, and uh, they can support us in Ukraine. We have four schools now that are shelters to refugees. We need to feed them. We need to keep them warm. We need to educate them. We need to give them medications. It's a big expense. And we are very small. We grow by word of mouth. So I would like to, everybody who listens or sees this, uh, this uh, conversation, share it with somebody else. See what you can do. Everybody can do something. Because at the end, it's what you do for Jesus. It's not because he says, if you do it unto one of the least of these, one, you have done it unto me. At least the one. The key word is one. Help one. Save one. And that's all 
You've seen God do some spectacular things for you. Yes. Honestly, you came into the world, every child comes into the world full of hope and promise, but they were snatched away from you pretty quickly. Yes. God had bigger plans. Mm -hmm. The hope and the promise were restored, and and, and your, your ministry, your life, your experience has been one of God's leading. It's been a life of... It's been a life of faith. You know, I want to help kids, so I'm going to spend all I have, and oops, I'm down to one, my last $100. <laughs> yes. Faith is easy to listen to. Yes. It's easy to hear your story, and it's so inspiring. Yes. But faith is not always so easy for some people experientially to experience, to manifest. We've got about 60 seconds. I'd like you to take that time to speak to somebody now and talk about uh, how 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 they can take a step of faith to allow God's will to be done in their life. You've done it all your life. How would you encourage other people to live a life of faith? Yeah. You know, uh, it is easy. Everybody has good intentions. We all have good intentions. We want to help. We want to serve God. But when young people, they need to go to school. Then they get want to get married. Then they want to have children. Then they want to, their children to grow and go to school. And then they get children, get married. They become grandkids, grandparents. And then the time flies and they have missed the boat. Don't, it. if God touches your hearts to do something for him, trust him that he, he took care of me. He provided for everything for the ministry, expertise, resources. He can do the same to you. Amen. You don't want to get to the end of your life and say, I missed the boat. Norma, this has been a joy. Thank you. God bless you. I appreciate it immensely. Restoreachild.org if you would like to know more. And I hope you would like to know more. Thanks for joining us with Norma Nashed. I'm John Bradshaw. This has been our conversation brought to you by It Is Written. Mm -hmm. 